Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound Critical Care provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Acute severe elevations in blood pressure can cause significant morbidity due to organ injury. Furthermore, elevations in blood pressure are commonly seen in the hospital setting and are often mismanaged by clinicians. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss the latest evidence, the proper management, and potential pitfalls of acute severe hypertension. Our guest is Dr. Aldo Peixoto. Dr. Peixoto is a professor of medicine in the section of nephrology at the Yale University School of Medicine. He is also Vice Chair for Quality and Safety, Department of Internal Medicine, and Clinical Chief of the Section of Nephrology. His research interests include secondary and refractory forms of hypertension. He has published more than 100 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters in nephrology and hypertension, and is the author of a book on bedside diagnosis. He's an Associate Editor of Blood Pressure Monitoring and is on the editorial board of the American Journal of Nephrology and the Brazilian Journal of Nephrology. Dr. Peixoto is a recognized clinician, researcher, and medical educator. We are honored to have him as our guest. Aldo, welcome to Critical Matters. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, Sergio. So I think that we could maybe start by just, if you could give us an overall introduction to acute severe hypertension in terms of, is it frequent? What do we know about it today? And then maybe we can start diving into some of the definitions. Sure. So um, acute severe hypertension, which is the the term that uh, I chose to borrow from others to to define both uh, or to include both uh, hypertensive emergencies and urgencies, and we can, we can define them a little better in a second, is broadly described a blood pressure that's over a certain threshold, and the arbitrary threshold that's been used is 180 for systolic and either 110 or 120 for diastolic. Um, this is very common. It's a it, it's it's a, a very common uh, cause of visits to emergency departments throughout the world. It's a very common cause for admissions, and uh, and it's a problem that that. Uh, uh, is of interest to um, emergency physicians, critical care specialists, cardiologists, hospitalists. So um, I thought it was a, a very, um, always have thought of it as a very important uh, topic to discuss. Absolutely. And I think it's one of those things, as we'll see, that even though we see frequently and we encounter a lot, often gets mismanaged in both directions, both over and under treatment. And I think that centralizing or focusing on some of the basic concepts that can guide our therapeutic conduct, I think is always a, a good place. So could you give us, Aldo, maybe a little bit more um, precise definitions? And you did mention a little bit when you talked about the umbrella of hypertensive crisis and some uh, numbers that, as you said, are arbitrary. But I think an important distinction really has to do with hypertensive emergency and everything else, or what some people call hypertensive urgency. How would you define these two? Very good. So if we start with uh, a certain value, let's pick 180 over 120. Um, and then the next step is really to define whether there is acute target organ damage. 
So if there is acute target organ injury, we call that an emergency. If there is no acute target organ damage, then it becomes a, a an urgency. And so, so it's important to define, number one, that the target organ injury is acute, not chronic. And obviously, it needs to be an injury to an organ that's typically affected by uh, hypertension, and, and that is the brain, the heart, the large vessels, the kidneys, the microvasculature, and one include, would include the findings in the retina as part of this uh, microvascular injury. So if there is evidence of acute brain dysfunction, and whether that is due to uh, an acute stroke, an acute uh, intracerebral hemorrhage, um, uh, or hypertensive encephalopathy, um, or if there's evidence of acute um, uh, cardiac involvement, such as a, an acute coronary syndrome or acute decompensated heart failure, involvement of large vessels, and that's predominantly acute um, uh, aortic dissection, acute renal involvement, so acute renal failure caused by severe hypertension. Chronic kidney disease can be caused by by hypertension, but but here it's important that it be uh, recognized as an acute problem, which is typically part of microvascular involvement, which can be diagnosed either by the changes in the kidney that can happen acutely, or by microangiopathic hemolytic, hemolytic anemia, or by some of the findings in the retina, such as the the uh, the, the, the acute. Uh, retinopathy changes such as hemorrhages, exudates, and ultimately papilledema. So when these findings are present, findings of acute target organ uh, damage exist, then we label those patients as, ha as having an emergency. And that has pretty significant implications to uh, what we do with those patients. Those patients belong in the uh, intensive care unit. They should not be managed on the floor. They should be treated promptly with IV drugs. Um, and, and, you know, you're going to select the drugs according to, to the specific indications. You're going to lower the, the blood pressure following a pattern. I, I think we'll, we'll get to that later in our conversation. But, but what's important is that those patients be at a high level of monitoring, uh, that they be treated with IV drugs. Most of them should have uh, a, an arterial line to monitor their blood pressure. And, uh, and, and this is a very uh, select group of patients uh, that, that really require aggressive therapy. In the absence of um, acute target organ damage, then I, that's when we can actually do harm by over-treatment. And, and, and in those patients, the approach to therapy is, is, is different and should focus uh, on um, the if the patients have symptoms related to the blood pressure, let's say patients have a headache, patients have a um, uh, let's say epistaxis, something that's that's acutely bothering them, we might want to try to control their blood pressure a little faster just to make them feel better. But the the ultimate goal is really to adjust longer acting medications. So, uh, and, and, and obviously through oral therapy, not intravenous therapy. And those patients very often don't belong in the emergency room, don't belong in the hospital, but they need to receive intensive outpatient therapy. And, and I think that this is an important paradigm that, uh, that, that uh, is not followed that um, uh, frequently. And that's a point that I, that I always think is important to make.
Absolutely. And I think that um, one question I have uh, regarding the, the the term of hypertensive urgency, I know that um, and I've always found the construct useful, especially in explaining uh, to others, but also in terms of my therapeutic approach. But I do know that lately it has become or fallen in disfavor. And some people really just say, focus on the emergencies. Everything else is just hypertension. Any comments on that, Aldo? I think that that's uh, the the uh, the the main the big push for that is because if you hear urgency, it still has a an urgent tone to it, right? And uh, and and what ends up happening is that people think that those patients should be sent from the office to the emergency room, should be brought in from the emergency into the ho- from the emergency room into the hospital, sometimes even into a step down or ICU unit. Um, and 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 that's why the name has the term has been uh, it has been proposed that they uh, that it not be used because those patients really should be treated as outpatients in a fairly aggressive way, but still as outpatients. And with that, I fully agree. The whether changing terminology will help in moving that agenda forward and changing the paradigm. Um, that's arguable. Uh, I decided uh, in, in, in writing uh, uh, recently about this, I decided to, to maintain the term urgency just because it's easier to, to drive the discussion, not because of one thing or another. And, and I would not oppose eliminating uh, this focus on emergencies and, and eliminating the term urgency and just defining the fact that, some, that if someone has a blood pressure, that it, that is at that kind of level that the management in the outpatient setting should be done in a fairly intensive way. Absolutely, and I think that um, it's just important also um, to be coherent with our treatment. And I think that one of the the pitfalls I often see is not recognizing that somebody has acute organ damage and not implementing the appropriate therapies. And then the other extreme is over treating people who don't have acute organ damage and be putting them at risk for, 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 for damage from our treatment. So you talked about the two elements that define the hypertensive emergency, which are an elevation in blood pressure and the presence of acute organ damage. Could you talk a little bit more, Aldo, about proper measurement of blood pressure, which I think, I mean, is the first step, obviously, in terms of trying to figure out if somebody's hypertensive? I think that that is a major issue um, because at um, uh, very high blood pressure levels uh, and and when you start seeing systolics above the 180 range and diastolics above 100 to 110, the validating protocols that are used to validate uh, most oscillometric devices that we use in most hospitals, emergency rooms, and offices, uh, those protocols don't hold as well because it's hard to find people that walk around with blood pressures of 220 over 120 in the ambulatory setting to participate in the study. So those uh, the, the, the validation uh, protocols of the algorithms uh, for these oscillometric devices hold very well in, in the range of systolic pressures between 90 to about 180, and, uh, and especially 160. They hold well for diastolics 
in the 60 to 100, 105 range, but really lose accuracy afterwards. In the ICU uh, population, post-operative population, this has been relatively well studied. And we know that when you get to systolic blood, to, to blood pressures in the range of what we call acute severe hypertension, there tends to be a, a, uh, an underestimation of the uh, intra-arterial pressure by these oscillometric devices. So you, you may be, and, and that the average underestimation may be as high as 50 over 30. So this is a, a significant problem. And then on the lower end uh, of, of the pressure range, there is a, an overestimation of blood pressure, not of this magnitude, but still present. So bottom line, the same, the same way as critical care specialists very often resort to put in an A-line to monitor someone who's on pressors with uh, uh, to, to make sure that they are guiding the blood pressure, the use of vasopressor agents uh, well in the low pressure range, the same holds here. And if you're gonna be using intravenous agents, you should have a very precise measurement of blood pressure. And therefore, these uh, patients who have hypertensive emergencies, who get admitted to the ICU, in whom uh, acute target organ damage uh, exists, those patients deserve an A-line for, for, for um, uh, more precise blood pressure measurement and treatment titration. And this, uh, this um, lack of performance at extremes is not solved when you use a manual mercury sphinger manometer if you're an old school um, for, person. So Unfortunately, not. Yes, the a a a uh, the the obviously we don't even have mercury manometers, but it was a problem with mercury. It is a problem with aneroids. The accuracy of these uh, devices and and the use of auscultatory technique doesn't improve that uh, uh, difference and that bias that's observed when compared to intra. Uh, arteria. So, so there's not only a, a a problem in validating algorithms with oscillometric devices, but also an accuracy in measurement um, uh, when using um, auscultatory methods. Excellent. And I think this is an important point because the presence, again, of acute organ damage is what should be dictating whether we bring somebody to the ICU, we use IV, we are more precise with our measurements. And identifying that, as we'll talk a little bit later, is really the key to, to this discussion. In terms of pathophysiology, Aldo, what causes acute severe hypertension? So um, it can be caused by just about anything that causes hypertension. So when we talk about pathophysiology specifically, that would be too broad a discussion. You know, you can have in the setting of acute microvascular injury, for example, pressure-induced injury, and, and the term that we used to use very often of malignant hypertension. So these patients, the, the acute injury to the renal microvasculature drives a lot of this, and there's a very extensive activation of the renal angiotensin system. And in other situations, the mechanisms are going to be uh, predominantly adrenergic. Uh, you know, so for example, uh, acute uh, presentations in in pheochromocytoma would be a great example of that. So I prefer to look at it less from a, a, a pathophysiologic mechanism specifically, but 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 I think as a, in a clinical discussion, what's more valuable is to review what uh, uh, typical causes exist. And one thing is very obvious. The majority of patients who present 
with acute severe hypertension have a diagnosis of hypertension. That number is 80 to 90, sometimes even higher, 90% of cases. So these are people who already have a known diagnosis of hypertension and then present typically in a setting of not having taken medications. This is consistent across many observational studies and uh, in different countries. This is not a United States problem. This happens across, uh, around the world. So in someone who has, who comes in with this and gives you a history of not uh, taking medications regularly, you know, ran out of medications, someone stopped uh, uh, meds and started a, a new treatment that's not exactly right, you're going to pick most cases just by this. Um, and, and there really isn't, uh, you should not be running to, um, to try to make a diagnosis of a secondary cause immediately in these patients. You might have to get back to it in case they are indeed resistant to therapy. But, uh, but, but just the very fact that they presented with acute severe hypertension doesn't mean that you need to, to, to go look for secondary causes. However, any of the, tip, of the typical secondary causes, and we could come down, you know, go down the list of, uh, of renal parenchymal, renal vascular, uh, adrenal cortical, so primary aldosteronism and, and its various presentations, adrenal med medullary, so especially the rare cases of pheochromocytoma, um, so on and so forth. We could go down the, the list of secondary causes of hypertension. Those need to be thought about when people present with severe, acute severe hypertension without having a previous history of hypertension. In those cases, I would argue your threshold to, to rule out uh, uh, secondary causes should be much lower. But in those that already have a history of hypertension and who report uh, decreased adherence, uh, and people are very often very candid in telling you that, in those patients, you, you should probably focus first on management, and then if they become resistant, just as you would do in anybody with, with resistant hypertension in the ambulatory setting, you would then trigger the evaluation of secondary hypertension. Does that, does that answer your, your question? Or? Absolutely, absolutely. And in terms of um, other precipitants, uh, that could also um, cause severe elevations in blood pressure that wouldn't be secondary or wouldn't be lack of taking medications. Uh, can you mention some that we should think about at least when we see the patients in the ED or for the first time? Yes. Yeah. So, so uh, the most important ones are related to in patients who have salt-sensitive hypertension. Sometimes you have the combination of increased salt intake. Uh, so you start with not as well-controlled blood pressure that is salt sensitive. So for example, in African-Americans, in patients with underlying kidney disease, in patients uh, who are older, and then you add to that an acute salt load. And often with uh, uh, a, another common precipitant, drugs are common precipitants, and then another, uh, a class of drugs that can further enhance salt sensitivity, which are non-steroidals. So you could have that kind of perfect storm. You already start at a higher pressure, you, you, you eat a large salt load and take some, uh, some NSAID for whatever reason, That's, that often precipitates. 
the the you know drugs that can be looked as, as secondary causes are also very important, especially um, sympathomimetic drugs. So very important to 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 think about them. And um, and sometimes patients may be triggered on this one when they go on high dose steroids, especially again if they are salt sensitive and already poorly controlled to to begin with. So thinking of of medications is is very important. Uh, and 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 in salt sensitive patients, um, a high sodium load is also something that that very often uh, throws patients into a uh, an episode of um, acute severe hypertension. Excellent. And and Aldo, I think from, from a perspective of what causes organ damage, really, um, obviously, there's a lot that we don't fully understand, but a lot of it centers around two, I think, important aspects. One is outer regulation, and the other one has to do with uh, endothelial injury, right? Can we talk sure. a little bit about outer regulation curves and how you view them uh, from your perspective, and ultimately how they, I think they have implication for the way we, we approach these patients? Sure. So, so I think that if we, uh, so, so the best way we should probably just define autoregulation first, which is the ability of a, uh, so there are changes in, in, uh, arteriolar tone to modulate perfusion of an organ. So with vasodilatation and the low blood pressure ranges so that all the organ perfusion can be enhanced and vasoconstriction on the high end uh, uh, ranges to prevent pressure induced uh, tissue injury so the the organs where this has significant importance in the setting of acute severe hypertension are um, primarily well let's say three the brain has a is by far the most important because of the the concern about symptoms and injury related to to the brain on both ends so if blood pressure goes too low obviously cerebral hyperperfusion and that would be a complication of therapy and if blood pressure goes too high and supersedes the 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 autoregulation on the high end then the symptoms um, associated with uh, severe hypertension, such as uh, cerebral edema causing hypertensive encephalopathy, uh, focal cerebral edema uh, causing, for example, posterior reversible encephalopathy, um, uh, and, uh, and, and, and obviously uh, hypertension-associated strokes. In the kidney, that uh, loss of autoregulation is also important because some of the microvascular injury that occurs in the kidney will then drive the process of malignant hypertension and acute kidney injury related to high blood pressure. The vasculature itself doesn't have an autoregulatory process because blood is flowing. And the microvascular injury, the, the uh, extent of not only endothelial but also injury to uh, uh, to the the the, the wall uh, happens uh, uh, by a variety of mechanisms. But in 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 during the exposure to very high blood pressure, you have extensive injury to the vascular wall, and in the part related to the to the endothelium, you have this uh, process uh, in the microvasculature that then uh, uh, is is one of the mechanisms of generating a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia in which pressure-induced injury to the endothelium uh, leads to microvascular 
uh, uh, injury and these patients develop uh, uh, microangiopathic anemia with uh, thrombocytopenia in a way that's classic and, and, and uh, just the same as you would see with other mechanisms of endothelial injury and this one just happens to be a pressure-induced injury. So, so this defines the importance of autoregulatory curves in mediating the complications in the brain, in the kidney, the endothelial injury for for developing the the Maha type presentation, and then the 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 last one that's worth remembering is the heart, just because especially in patients with acute coronary syndromes, that we need to be very cautious of what the diastolic blood pressure is doing, and that that doesn't really have to do much with autoregulation, but just has to do more with uh, patterns of 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 myocardial perfusion pressure and the concerns with excessive reduction of diastolic pressure in patients with uh, acute coronary syndromes. So um, the, the, the next important concept to understand is that when we talk about treatment, understanding the autoregulatory curves to the brain, I think that the most important to understand, and it's also the best studied, is essential to um, uh, to, to define where we can go in terms of treatment. We need to, to remember that patients with chronic hypertension shift their autoregulatory curves to the right. So that affords them greater protection against very high pressures, but puts them at risk for, of, of cerebral hypoperfusion at blood pressures that wouldn't be too, um, too concerning for for most of us and uh you know so usually we don't worry about mean arterial pressures of 85 causing problems to anybody but in a hypertensive with a very high rightward shifted autoregulatory curve that might be already in a range where they might be um, where they may have cerebral hypoperfusion and then one last common surgery, comment, Sergio, that I think might be worth making is that in patients who have an acute um, de novo hypertension, who were previously very normal tensive, they may develop significant brain uh, hyper, you know, cerebral edema uh, uh, um, uh, related to pressures that are not as high as we would see. So the, as we would uh, usually worry about. So those are people who can have a hypertensive emergency with a blood pressure that's less than 180 over 110 or over 120. Classic examples of that would be um, uh, preeclampsia, eclampsia. Um, younger patients, especially kids, uh, you know, with, uh, with acute glomerulonephritis, and uh, pheochromocytoma crises. So th these are important exceptions to just, you know, there are some people who are very fixated on a number uh, and, and, you know, don't sit on, on, a, uh, on a young uh, preeclamptic woman who maybe two weeks ago had never seen a blood pressure above uh, whatever, 100 over 65, uh, who now has a blood pressure of, um, you know, 165 over 120, and you're not worried because the, 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 or let's say 165 over 110, and you're not worried because it doesn't pass muster or doesn't, doesn't cross the thresholds of the binary criteria that people develop. So I, I think that those are some of the, the important points that I want to, that I wanted to make about um, autoregulation.
And I think just to emphasize, uh, it's very important uh, to think about the numbers in the right context because I think it's very easy for a clinician to anchor their decision making to an objective number. And like you said, in a young preeclamptic patient, maybe not be too concerned because, oh, it's only 160 over 110. Yet for that patient, that rapid increase has exceeded their ability to auto-regulate and is causing acute organ damage. And the converse, I guess, is also true, is you see 180 over 110 in somebody who is chronically hypertensive, not taking their medications, and uh, we jump to bring that down. And by doing that, we can cause more harm. So really focusing more on the on what it means for that patient and the presence or absence of acute organ damage. I think that's really where the auto-regulation curves and understanding them really come to play. Absolutely. So let's talk about therapeutic management and uh, really obviously uh, uh, there's m multiple ways you could you could approach this, but based on the conversation that we've had so far, Aldo, it really seems that a sentinel decision point in terms of intervening from an intensivist perspective with an IV drug aggressively in an ICU centers around the presence of acute organ damage. Could you tell us how you approach a patient with severe acute hypertension and determining do they have organ damage just from a very practical standpoint? Yeah, so um, so if, if, if let's, uh, obviously the, 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 the main one is, is to look for symptoms, right? So someone who has obvious findings, uh, let's say obvious uh, clinical symptoms to suggest a stroke, whether uh, ischemic or hemorrhagic, um, visual changes to suggest press, um, chest pain to suggest an acute coronary syndrome or a dissection, um, shortness of breath to suggest uh, uh, acute decompensated heart failure, um, and uh, in the basic labs that one would get, if there is acute renal failure and you would suspect that this is, and you have reason to suspect that that's new, uh, so those would be, um, or, or let's say a new microangiopathic hemolytic anemia that wasn't present uh, previously, so those are pretty obvious. The ones that, the, 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 the tougher uh, distinction is in the absence of symptoms, right? Because uh, the the quality of laboratory tests and, and diagnostic tests to to uh, uh, to identify uh, findings and, and the value the the the, the sensitivity and, and especially the specificity of these findings is difficult to interpret. So um, I use a, a an approach that there leaves room for discussion. Right, but but let's let's be pragmatic. So, for example, in in, in if the if the uh, screening neurological exam is negative, and um, a uh, fundoscopic exam, which I still do, I really do, <laughs> um, is is normal. I don't pursue any anything further in terms of uh, of brain evaluation. In the heart, if if the patient has a normal clinical exam. And does not have shortness of breath. I, you know, very often don't even do a chest X-ray. In the ER, everybody's going to get a chest X-ray. Um, I do not know how to do 
uh, echoes, so I don't I, I don't I don't carry a butterfly in my pocket. And if I did, I might take a look at the at the heart. Although there are no data to show that that makes any difference. Same thing as doing BNPs. Um, you know, if the patient doesn't have symptoms suggestive of heart failure, a BNP has has no value. The issue of doing troponins or not. Everybody, I do an, an EKG on everybody. Um, but without real certainty that that's of any value. I, if in the emergency room, patients get a troponin, and, and I'm very reassured if a troponin is normal. If a troponin is mildly abnormal, uh, it not necessarily means that, uh, that the patient has an acute coronary syndrome. It may be just a evidence of, of chronic injury, and that's a point of, of contention. Um, uh, most patients that I end up seeing, uh, either if, I'm, uh, if it's in the hospital and I'm attending on the, on the uh, medical service or if it's someone that I go to the ED um, uh, to see in the emergency room, those, those patients will have a troponin, but there's, there's certainly room for, for uh, contention there. In the in in the presence of symptoms, uh, then obviously we will guide the the diagnostic evaluation based on, as I discussed briefly before, on on whatever uh, you find, and then the modality typically of imaging will be guided by 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 the symptoms. Uh, in the kidney, it's worth mentioning that uh, if there is acute kidney injury. The, the likelihood, then the, the, the distinction that needs to be made is, is this a primary renal disease that's causing the hypertension, or is this the hypertension causing kidney injury as part of the malignant hypertension syndrome, uh, if you will? And that is not always, not, you know, very often it's a difficult diagnosis that you can only sort out by, by a kidney biopsy. If you, because even if you see a lot of uh, red cells in the sediment, a lot of proteinuria, it could still be uh, a, a uh, malignant, a, a, you know, malignant hypertension causing renal failure rather than the other way around. So that, that is very often a difficult one to do without a kidney biopsy. Uh, and for microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, typically it would follow the typical work of Maha. And and uh, and and if there and I don't think I have ever seen someone with, who present with with hypertension, severe hypertension, with only Maha. They usually have something else, typically renal failure uh, along with it. Uh, I've never seen someone present just with, let's say, uh, hemolytic anemia and thrombocytopenia and nothing else as as part of their presentation of uh, of severe of uh, hypertension hypertensive emergency. So that's my usual uh, approach to 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 diagnosis. What do Excellent. you do? I want to. I want to. Well, I, what do I you take do a that I don't approach. do? <laughs> well, I think a well. I can tell you what you do that I don't do is a fundoscopic exam, and that's shame on me. But I wanted to talk <laughs> about that. So the two things that 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 uh, that you mentioned that I wanted to dive a little bit more into are the fundoscopic exam. And you talked about the butterfly. So on the butterfly, what, what, what I wanted to ask you before we go to detail in the fundoscopic exam is that more and more clinicians, especially in the ED and the ICU, are proficient with ultrasound, are carrying ultrasound. And uh, it's not something that I have done regularly, but I have seen um, studies suggesting that measuring the, um, the, um, the width of the optic nerve is a good correlate of ICP, increased intracranial pressure, or papilledema. Have you uh, seen any of that? Uh, could that be like the 
the millennial fundoscopic exam. Any thoughts on that, Aldo? So I do not know the specific paper or papers that you're referring to in terms of optic nerve with, I have not read any such paper. There is a, uh, there's a, a very good amount of knowledge uh, of, of, of studies looking at uh, arteriolar diameter uh, and as a measure of chronic hypertensive injury. So as a, as a pretty good correlate for hypertensive vascular injury, but that's all in the realm of chronic hypertension. I, I'm not aware of, uh, uh, of, of anything in the acute hypertension injury, but it just means that I haven't seen those papers. The, the value that I see of fundoscopy is that if you do not see um, uh, exudates, hemorrhages, it gives you a, a sense that the microvasculature is holding on to that blood pressure pretty well. And, uh, and I, I, I feel reassured about that. Uh, on the other hand, if someone who's asymptomatic and I'm looking at their fundus and I see exudates, I see hemorrhages, I may even see a little bit of peplodema, that, that's someone that I'm going to be very worried about. And uh, fortunately, we see those very, very infrequently. Um, there's, a, there's a device, and I have no conflict of interest on, on this, there's a device that you can attach to uh, your phone and that takes excellent pictures of the fundus. I do not have that device, but I've seen it uh, being used. It, get, it pro provides really great pictures, and it has the advantage that you can share the pictures. Not only you get a good view of the fundus, but you you can just, if, if you have a, a, an ophthalmologist that you can just send the the images to, um, uh, you, you'd have an extra uh, layer of reassurance that what you looked at is exactly what you're thinking about. So most of all, what I do is with the ophthalmoscopes that I have in the room uh, rather than this, and, and this provides something that, that's useful. I just, I haven't, uh, haven't spent the money to buy one for me. <laughs> So, and I think it's important because um, obviously fundoscopic examination is a lost art. And I think that uh, people use it less and less. I mean, I, I would be uh, surprised to find a, a resident or a fellow carrying an, an ophthalmoscope in his, in his lab coat uh, today. I would be very surprised if I find that. It's more likely that they have a butterfly like you, like you mentioned, but clearly the, the presence of severe grade three or grade four retinopathy is a is a it, it's a red alarm. It's a it's a it's a signal that something needs to be done. That this patient is at at high risk. And I think, like you said, the the absence or presence is something that is very very valuable in maybe directing therapy in some of these patients. And uh, I think it's something that we that we should probably encourage people to think about, especially in the setting of the ED, which they should have a fun. Uh, Fundoscope that we, ophthalmoscope that we could utilize to to look at this, and I will definitely investigate more on that that phone device, which uh, sounds very very intriguing. Not something that that I uh, that I know much about. Now, you did mention uh, retinopathy. The other thing that you mentioned, which I think constitutes with retinopathy the two often forgotten acute organ damage, is the micro angiopathic hemolytic anemia, and this is something that I think a lot of times people tend to forget about and not think about, but clearly also, I mean, in some situations, it could be, I mean, an indicator that something uh, requires immediate treatment. Could you comment a little bit more about how you differentiate um, microangiopathic hemolytic anemia from hypertension 
from other syndromes that I'm sure you get called for HUS or uh, or other symptoms associated with this phenomenon? Yeah, so there will be, you know, HUS is a bad one to pick, right? Because hypertension so often complicates HUS. Renal failure is uniformly a a, uh, a part of the presentation. So that makes it very hard. And that's going to be similar to the, the, the issue of what you do with, uh, 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 you know, a primary glomerulonephritis versus uh, uh, renal failure related to malignant hypertension. So in that one, it may be that your answer is going to come from control of blood pressure and cessation of the of the microangiopathy. So improvement in platelet counts and, and improvement in, in uh, uh, hemoglobin as you uh, control the blood pressure better. The evaluation is the typical one of how you'd approach a patient with um, with uh, uh, um, with microangiopathy, with a, a hemolytic, with suspicion of a hemolytic anemia. So after the screen is positive, you know, whatever, LDH is high, heptoglobin is low, platelets are low, um, looking at a peripheral smear. Um, and then if there is, because if you end up with someone who's encephalopathic uh, with or without some LFT abnormalities, and by the way, you can see uh, uh, there are rare reports of hepatitis uh, in the setting of uh, uh, of hepatocellular injury, let's call it uh, hepatocellular injury in the setting of malignant hypertension. Uh, those, um, so in those patients, you might end up even having to send an, M an Adams 13 as part of the evaluation of a possible TTP syndrome. And um, so, so that evaluation is one that's going to uh, uh, depend on the severity of the process, how quickly you have to make a decision about the diagnosis, very often involving a hematologist so you can have a good input about uh, what the peripheral smear looks like and if there's anything else that, that we may be missing. Uh, and, and then usually as you have these results uh, coming back in, you know, you can get an Adams 13 level pretty quickly. Uh, you know, we as nephrologists are looking looking at the urine sediment, the, the hematologist is giving a perspective uh, from theirs. And uh, in the meantime, uh, the blood pressure is coming down, and then we can, we can identify if this is part of the uh, hypertensive emergency syndrome or if there's something else that's driving the, 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 the process. In pregnancy, obviously, the issue is a little different. Unfortunately, uh, uh, the, the delivery uh, usually takes place, takes care of these things. And I think that you had asked, I mean, what would I, what, what do I approach it? And I think that the approach is, like I said, is very similar. And, and to be honest, although what I find is that I think is an important point is that a lot of times I will evaluate these patients in the ED. And uh, more often than not, everything that I need has been ordered already as part of the exactly. routine workup. So exactly. it's really just, I mean, yeah. using those basic things to very quickly in a systematic way, eliminate the evidence of organ failure and, or presence. And that ultimately decides where the patient needs to go and what we need to do. The one thing that I wanted to, to get your, your thoughts on, and actually uh, this is probably the highlight of my uh, career as a fellow uh, in terms of consultations, was recognizing in a patient that they were about to start an IV drip that he had a big uh, prostate and had a very, very large bladder. <laughs> and uh, my suggestion in a, in a very tongue-in-cheek way to the ED attending was instead of the, uh, the nicardipine, I would put a Foley in. And that took care of the, of the blood pressure. Uh, any comments on things that we need to make sure that we eliminate before we start treating the blood pressure? 
Yes. Yeah, so, so um, uh, in your so in, enlargement of the uh, you know f- a full bladder, a full undrained bladder is a cause of hypertension in any body. It will be a very it's a cause of severe hypertension in patients who have dysautonomia, especially patients with autonomic uh, uh, dysreflexia uh, due to um, uh, spinal cord you know high spinal cord injuries. So in those you're going to see blood pressures that are truly phenomenal with just a, 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 a an undrained bladder or a um, uh, sometimes just with constipation it's a, it's amazing the, the the impact but i uh, so, but a, a large bladder can drive very high blood pressures on just about anybody especially if you have pain so the corollary to that is that severe pain from anything since uh, in patients especially patients who already have a diagnosis of hypertension the adrenergic surge related to that can very often cause very high uh, uh, blood pressures. So uh, treat pain first before you reach to the uh, to the uh, you know let's say intravenous drugs to manage the the hypertension. The 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 same thing is true for uh, shortness of breath. So in, in decompensated heart failure, sometimes it, it's not the blood the hypertension that's driving the heart failure. It's the heart failure and then the adrenergic surge related to the to the uh, hypoxia that's driving the blood pressure. And sometimes just control of volume promptly brings the blood pressure down. Uh, obviously, uh, fortunately, the treatment ends up being the same. So, uh, so, so you can take both, but don't be surprised if just correction of, uh, uh, you know, resolution of, of, of pulmonary edema is, is enough to control the blood pressure and, and, and the, the hypertension doesn't remain for very long. Excellent. So if we determine that the patient has evidence of acute organ damage, as you mentioned earlier, these are patients that require aggressive treatment with IV drugs, likely benefit from an A-line and definitely should be treated in monitor settings like an ICU. How do you know how much to lower the blood pressure? How do you think about the target mean arterial pressure, Aldo? So there's a, there's a, a couple of things that you need to take into account for that. The first one is the uh, you're going to use pathophysiologic principles, right? You're going to use the uh, some lessons from the autoregulatory curves and what we've known from experiments in humans looking at this and make decisions about what is safe based on the autoregulatory curve. So that's the first point. The second point is specific to the individual conditions. Many of these specific recommendations are opinion-based. They are not based on on trial data. The only uh, uh, so we we have okay data in the setting of ischemic stroke and reasonable data in in the setting of intracerebral hemorrhage. For everything else, the decisions are likely are are, are largely driven by um, by uh, you know presumed pathophysiology and uh, clinical observations. So let's let's go um, maybe one by one, if you will, of the, the major uh, clinical centers. Absolutely. So for example, for patients who have um, uh, diffuse microvascular damage, or as used to be called malignant hypertension, um, and patients who have hypertensive encephalopathy, so severe hypertension with uh, microvascular injury and or a, a hypertensive encephalopathy. Uh, 
Those patients, you bring the blood pressure down and they, you respect the, the uh, autoregulatory curve. So, so what are some principles? So that, that would be uh, a sort of the most generic reduction. So you can bring the blood pressure down by about 25% or so in the first hour. Okay, it's generally safe. Um, if you if you do not bring the blood pressure down by more than 30% or so, you rarely get to the inflection point on the lower end of the autoregulatory curve. So let me, uh, since we're not looking at graphics, let me tell you exactly what I'm meaning. So if you if you bring the blood pressure, uh, as you bring the blood pressure down, there will be a point where the autoregulation is lost. And at that time, cerebral, hypo, uh, cerebral perfusion will fall fairly abruptly. How abruptly it falls has a very large inter-individual variation. So you cannot predict what that is. But that point of, uh, that of, of a, an abrupt decrease rarely occurs at uh, um, uh, levels that are less than about 25 or so, 30% of reduction from where the blood pressure was at the time you started treating. So that's what gives you that cushion of safely bringing the blood pressure down by about 25%. That's what that that's where the the the, the golden number of 25% reduction of either systolic or mean arterial pressure comes from. So that you can do. Within the first hour, it's probably okay. Some people want to be a little more com uh, conservative and bring it down within two hours. I think that in most patients, bringing it down in one hour is is uh, good enough uh, and safe enough. So you would bring that, and then over the, the, the ensuing um, uh, two to six hours or so, you try to bring the blood pressure to about, let's say, 160 over 100 or thereabouts. And um, and most of the hypotensive events will occur in those first six hours. So at that time, you just play with the IV drugs. And if people, if the patient does well in those first six hours, and definitely if you want to be conservative, the first six to twelve hours, then that is the time you start adding oral drugs. So that so you don't don't have to stay giving intravenous drugs for too long, and 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 as the the oral drugs the long acting oral drugs start acting, then you're able to wean the 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 antihypertensives down, uh, and your goal would be to reach your target blood pressure, whatever the target blood pressure is, you know, uh, arguably getting the patient down to the hopefully 140 over 90 range by the 48, 72 hour mark. So that would be a, a sort of the most generic approach. But then you have the specific other situations. So as I told you in stroke, we have, um, we have more data. So there's a little bit of, um, of a better way to, uh, you know, of guidance to this. And in, for example, in hemorrhagic stroke, um, if the blood pressure is in the 150 to 220 range, the, there is no general agreement, by the way. Uh, not even when I talk to our stroke neurologists, they don't agree among each other. Uh, they sometimes think 
that I'm too aggressive. Uh, they have told me that I am at times. Uh, and I'll tell you what, what I've written as a, as a general statement that I got general agreement is that if the blood pressure starts, systolic start in the 150 to 220, bring it down to about 140 to 150. Uh, and you can do that fairly safely within the first hour. And that's particularly true for patients who do not have a history of hypertension. You, you don't want to uh, you, you don't want to delay it too much for people who, who do not have known hypertension. And, uh, and in those who have, for example, a, an, e, an AVM or an aneurysm, because you want to control them well. Um, in patients who have a very large hematoma or who have otherwise evidence of, of increased intracranial pressure, then you might want to be a little more conservative because those patients will be at risk of ischemia in the peri uh in the peri uh, hemorrhage um, um, uh, area so um there is a formal recommendation that the systolic blood pressure should not come down be below 140 because in those patients there were uh, worse outcomes in one of the two large trials, uh, so in the attached two trial, there was harm uh, in bringing the blood pressure below uh, 140. So for cerebral hemorrhage, there is relatively good uh, guidance on this. For ischemic stroke, then it varies according to whether the patient's going to get thrombolytic therapy or not. If the patient's eligible for thrombolytic therapy, then the, the, the reduction would be to uh, less than 185 over 110 before they can get the thrombolytics, and then it's kept at less than 180 over 105, at least for the first day. And uh, if thrombolytic therapy is not uh, going to be used, then it's a little more liberal. Uh, and as long as the blood pressure is less than 220 over 120, then no intervention happens for the first two, three days. Um, and, and that's largely because of concerns of, of excessive blood pressure reduction and extension of, uh, of infarct because of the sensitive, the poor autoregulation of the uh, peri-infarct uh, penumbra, of the infarct penumbra. And, um, and, and then uh, uh, a, a very important thing with, with stroke, uh, with ischemic stroke, is that these people often have other complications. So, so if they may come in also with heart failure, or they, they, may, come, they may have an acute coronary syndrome. So, so if there is other target organ injury, then the management will will have to the management of the other target organ damage uh, injury will also uh, be factored here. So there may be patients with stroke that may have to be treated more aggressively because they have heart failure or because they have an acute coronary syndrome. Then for the uh, the, the 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 three last well-defined syndromes would be in acute coronary syndromes. There is a a suggestion. It's not there. Are no strong data to back this up uh, to decrease the systolics to less than 140 and you can do that within one hour uh, just got to be careful with keeping the diastolics above 60 to not worsen coronary perfusion in heart failure the general agreement is to bring the systolic down to less than 140 uh, also do that promptly within one hour again no data to to back that up and then finally 
the often nightmares of aortic dissection, uh, in which the goal is to uh, both decrease the systolic blood pressure promptly, right? You bring it down to less than 120, so it's both prompt and aggressive, but also not forgetting to decrease uh, the, the, the heart rate to, to limit the amount of, of aortic injury, so promptly also decreasing the heart rate to less than 60. So, so those are the, the general principles. And, and for every one of these, you will start oral therapy somewhere after the, that 12-hour that period or so, so that it allows you to, to titrate the, the oral medications off um, as, um, as, you, uh, as the patients progress. And I think that's a, a very important point that I often see people uh, misunderstand. The idea of starting, is you obviously are very aggressive up front, you stabilize them, but the idea of starting the oral medications in that six to 12 hour window is so that you can effectively wean them off the drip in 24 to 36 hours. It doesn't mean that you're going to stop the drip at 12 hours or at six hours. And I think that's an often, uh, I think, source of confusion. I see people basically control for 24 hours and then they start and then they wonder why the patient's still in the ICU. That's correct. So we talked about when to initiate aggressive treatment, which is the presence of organ failure and how to identify that. We talked about the targets based on our understanding of outer regulation and the available evidence, which you mentioned is very uh, lacking in general, but only available for some syndromes. Let's talk about drugs, uh, Aldo. And I know that um, there's not a lot of good studies that say uh, that show that one drug is superior to another, if any. Some drugs, some studies have paired drugs head to head, but just in terms of titration. But how do you think about drugs, and what are your general recommendations? So, um, as you as you said, uh, there are no, there are very limited data in terms of um, of outcomes. Um, we know we have very good control with calcium channel blockers, especially nicardipine and clavidipine. Um, those are excellent drugs. I had never used clavidipine until about a month ago, and then we've had a shortage in nicardipine. I used clavidipine in three patients in the last month, <laughs> so that was a, a curiosity. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very convenient drug. It's, uh, it's, it's short-acting. Uh, I like short-acting drugs because it gives me flexibility to, to, to control uh, the blood pressure. Um, so, um, so, and, and these are drugs that have uh, excellent control in clinical trials. Uh, labetalol also has done fairly well in, in clinical trials. You, it has the advantage that you can both use bolus and, uh, and drips. So it's a, it's, a, it's a convenient drug to use. It's well tolerated. Um, and, and, and those are the workhorses, right? Nicardipine. Labetalol, uh, as I said, I didn't have any personal experience with clavidipine. Our anesthesiologists use quite a bit, but but in the in the CCU and ICU, clavidipine wasn't used very much. Esmolol is an important drug as part of the management of dissection. Um, nitroglycerin very important in the management of patients with acute coronary syndromes and and, and heart failure. And these are the workhorses. I used a lot of nitride in the past. 
Uh, night pride has become obviously there there are the risks uh, of toxicity in patients with uh, you know prolonged infusions, patients with kidney disease, patients with liver disease, but also it has become tremendously almost prohibitively expensive. So so. Uh, Nitroprusside has not been used very often, at least in our institution, for for several years. Um, so, so these are really the, the 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 workhorses, and the decision of which one to use will be um, guided primarily by the pattern of injury. So, if you have, um, you know, diffuse microvascular injury or hypertensive encephalopathy, most people can be managed well with either labetalol and acardipine. Nipride is an alternative. Um, for hypertensive encephalopathy, it's the same. Um, for uh, patients with uh, intracerebral hemorrhage or acute stroke, the same. Uh, our neurointensivists uh, 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 really prefer nicardipine, so most patients end up being managed with nicardipine first. Uh, and then the acute coronary syndromes are largely with uh, with nitroglycerin, and obviously. Uh, um, uh, they end up getting a beta blocker along with the, with the nitroglycerin for heart failure. They get diuretics along with the uh, with with the, the nitroglycerin. And for dissection, most patients get a combination of uh, of esmolol and nicardipine, or um, um, or esmolol and nipride. Um, so so those those are really driven by the the underlying uh, uh, process. And personal preferences. And uh, one comment that I really think is important to make is that aside from heart failure, uh, hydralazine really should be, uh, or aside from heart failure and pregnancy, um, hydralazine really should not be used. It's a drug that that gives us unpredictable responses, sometimes excessive. Um, it, it, it really should not be used in patients with hypertensive encephalopathy and patients with stroke. But I would argue that uh, aside from heart failure, uh, especially heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and um, in pregnancy, that we should eliminate intravenous hydralazine. I, I, I really feel strongly about that, and and it's probably the most commonly used, uh, and I would say most commonly overused antihypertensive in our hospital. Absolutely, and I think that even when you look at pregnancy, in terms of uh, of safety and in terms of what we're trying to achieve from the blood pressure perspective, it really offers no advantage over something like nicardipine. So in terms I, I, of yeah, if, I, if the patients in my ICU, I would always favor using something like nicardipine over hydralazine, which, like you mentioned, is unpredictable, has a long half-life, and is probably not not a good drug to use from the risk of lowering the blood pressure too much. And I think that's ultimately what we're trying to to avoid in these patients. Um, and I think you mentioned clavidipine, and just for the listeners, obviously. Uh, clavidipine is a shorter-acting calcium channel blocker. Like you said, it's very, very prevalent uh, in the in the operating room. Uh, most of the initial studies were done in in in, in intra-op and post-op uh, patients. And I think that the reality is that it's probably not as prevalent in a lot of our ICUs just because of a cost issue compared to nicardipine. But I do think that as that eventually might change, a lot of our listeners might have that available as well. And uh, uh, because it's shorter acting, it might allow for more precise titration or more rapid titration, which even though there's no proven outcome benefit, might be beneficial from a, just a practice standpoint. Mm -hmm. 
So I think that if, as we're as we're closing, Aldo, uh, are there any uh, special clinical situations that we didn't talk about? Uh, maybe uh, something that's not as common, or a zebra, or something in particular that you want to mention? Yeah. So so you know uh, so for example, patients who who come in with cocaine intoxication, avoid beta blockers. I would probably even avoid labetalol. You have other options. Uh, and uh, if you think that the cocaine is part of the hypertensive uh, uh, emergency, you should probably avoid labetalol and certainly avoid um, uh, beta blockers that do not have an alpha blocking activity. So um, that's one. The second one is, uh, you know, let's not get into the pregnancy management. That's a completely different uh, uh, disease, and, and and for those patients, uh, you know, the the rapidity of management is is important. The delivery is important. Uh, the everybody should get meg sulfate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So so it's a different kettle of fish, and um, and you know the rare zebra ones. There will there will be patients that you 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 might see with um, uh, who have. Um, who have, uh, you know, a pheochromocytoma crisis. <laughs> uh, you know, they are, it's a rare disease. It's a disease you don't want to miss. <laughs> and, and those patients are really best managed by, with, with fentolamine, right? And, uh, and, and so the, the rapid initiation of fentolamine, and then as soon as the blood pressure is better controlled, then add in a beta blocker, but only after they are well uh, alpha blocked. Uh, fortunately, most of those patients are, are diagnosed in the outpatient setting, but you definitely don't want to miss that. So those those would be, um, uh, you know, acute catecholamine excess, uh, whether due to feel or cocaine, and then pregnancy are probably the the special clinical situations worth uh, worth mentioning. Let me ask you one zebra that stuck with me, and I've never encountered it in clinical practice, but I did encounter it in my medicine boards many, 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 many years ago, and that's the scleroderma hypertensive crisis. Yeah. Is uh, is IV ACE inhibitor still the drug of choice, or is that just something that is long forgotten? Uh, no, it is not long forgotten. Uh, the the treatment of choice, you you just you got to be gutsy to make the diagnosis, right? You the the key thing there is making the diagnosis, and uh, and and the treatment is because it's it's the kind of patient who comes in with severe hypertension, acute renal failure, and the drug you go for is exactly the drug that you avoid most of the times, and uh, and and and, uh, and and that's for the rapid reduction of blood pressure uh you if if the patient has especially if there is extra renal involvement you will need to use something else that you have greater control so you you will need to use nicardipine you will need to use maybe uh, the last one I saw, which was many years ago, we actually used nipride. But you need to start an ACE inhibitor at the same time. But it would be it would not be a good idea to use IV and aleprolat as your only drug because you don't have that much control with an aleprolat. So and this is someone that if they are taking PO, um, the drug of choice is actually captopril because there might be a an added advantage of the sulfhydro. Uh, components of captopril. So that is something still argued. There's not a ton of data of that on that. But most people with 
but people with scleroderma renal crisis are usually treated not only with ACE inhibitors, but specifically with Captopril. So the best approach would be to use a drug that you can titrate more, more carefully for the blood pressure reduction, and then at the very same time, start a, a an ACE inhibitor. And wh whether you want to use enalaprolat immediately or just throw captopril at them, that in my mind doesn't make as much of a difference. You're using that to treat the renal crisis, but don't, uh, but, but rely on something that's more potent and more easily titratable to treat the blood pressure. Does that make sense? It does. I haven't encountered one of these patients, but it's always nice to, to, review some of these zebras that stuck with us from our internal medicine training. But I yeah. think this has been a wonderful conversation, Aldo. I think there's a lot of, obviously, of very um, valid pearls, very actionable items for our clinicians who are listening to the podcast to take to the bedside. And I want to respect your time. I could continue talking about this for, for a long time, but I know that we want to be respectful of your time. So in closing, what we usually Sergio, do in the podcast is... Yes, Sergio. Excuse me, let me just, can I make one comment? We didn't talk Please. about hypertensive urgencies. And the one comment I want to make, because this is something that happens so often in the hospital, and, and not only in the wards, but also in the step-down units and in the ICUs, is the aggressive treatment of just plain hypertensive urgencies. And that's something that we should avoid altogether. Eliminate IV therapy. You know, so people who just because their blood pressure is now 200 over 120, the, the answer to that is not to give IV hydralazine or IV labetalol or wh whatever drug you choose. The choice for that is to adjust the long-acting drugs. And if the patient's symptomatic, there's a few, and you want to see a little faster control, probably oral clonidine or oral labetalol are your best friends. Uh, so stick with those drugs only if you need to control symptoms or you want to calm people up so that people are not too too excited for several hours. Adjust the long-acting drugs. Do not use IV drugs because we're going to cause more harm than good by doing that. So I just wanted to to make to make sure that we didn't finish our conversation without that comment. Absolutely, and I'm happy you brought that up because I did have it in my notes, and it, and it is true. One of the most frequent calls that our uh, clinicians get is from a nurse for somebody who has a very elevated blood pressure. And uh, it's almost like the knee-jerk knee reaction is to give them something IV, and we're really treating the nurse, but we're at risk of harming the patient. So I think mm -hmm. that uh, making that distinction, if there is or no uh, organ damage, and in those who are not, I agree with you 100%, Aldo, and I'm happy that you made that point because I do think that this is a common occurrence in hospitals and uh, then you go and look at the patient and they're asymptomatic, have no acute organ damage, and there's really no need to initiate, I mean, aggressive therapy that could just be harmful. So that's a great point, I mean, in terms of uh, that distinction. Thank you for making that. So as I was saying, in terms of closing, we like to finish the podcast by tapping into the wisdom of our, of our guests and asking a couple of questions that are unrelated to the topic that we were discussing clinically. Would that be okay? That would be okay. <laughs> So the first question relates to books, Aldo, and I was wondering if, if what books have influenced you the most or what books have you uh, most often gifted to others? So I thought of uh, two books. Uh, one that really uh, had a big impact on me about um, maybe 20 years ago or so is called Blindness by José Saramago. He's a Portuguese writer. 
Um, I'm Brazilian, so I, I, I speak Portuguese and I could read his work uh, in, in Portuguese. And he was a Nobel Prize winner in sometime in the 90s uh, for literature. And he's a wonderful writer. And this book is, is a, a real uh, interesting story about the development of an, 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 its acute blindness as, a, as an epidemic. And, and how the, develop, the sudden development of blindness just brings the worst in society and how good people can suddenly uh, be, uh, you know, heavily changed by, by the fears that come along by that. And, and, and it's told in a, in a wonderful way, in a, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's really a wonderful book that makes us think about how, how fragile our stability is. And that's Blindness by Saramago. The second one is really a satire that uh, it, it's called Portuguese Irregular Verbs. And it has nothing to do with Portuguese, by the way. Uh, and Portuguese Irregular Verbs by, by um, Alexander McCall uh, Smith, who is a, a, a Scottish lawyer. And he's a satirist. And this is a short book. It's about 130 pages. And it's a satire about three professors uh, who are romance. And one of them, the, the main character, is a romance philologist. And, and it, it, it goes into this importance that we give to ourselves for things that are really meaningless. And I see that in academia very often. You know, we we folk we, we think we are really relevant people, and we um, and, and and you know, obviously there are many of us who are. There are many people who are you know Nobel laureates and who have and 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 have really changed the way life as it is. But there are so many of us who you know we are good people and we go through life. And but but sometimes we get so caught up in the little worlds that we live in, uh, and and we lose sight of how, um, you know, there are so many more important things in life than that little world and that little expertise. And it's a wonderful read, and it's so funny. Uh, I think it's it's a it's a really worth. Uh, while read and I just don't gift it to my friends <laughs> because I don't want them to think <laughs> that I think their work is irrelevant. <laughs> yeah, you're giving them a, a, a message. So I definitely have not read that book, and I will look it up. Blindness obviously is a is a classic, and like you mentioned, Saramago is a Nobel laureate. But I think it also speaks obviously blindness. I mean, a way of looking at it is that we all have blind spots, and that these blind spots also sometimes bring the worst out of us. And that yep. uh, I think that obviously he does it in a beautiful narrative, and I think uh, both we will link to the to the show notes, and I will definitely look for Portuguese irregular verbs. I'm intrigued now, but I do like. It's a I mean, funny. It's a funny, interesting okay. read. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, I love that. So the second question, Aldo, has to do with something you believe to be true in medicine or in life that most other people don't believe to be true or act as if it's not true. So I'm going to tell you one in medicine, and um, and I don't know that most people believe it or not. Um, I'll tell you that I believe, even though I can't explain, is that uh, I think that patients often, that there is such a thing as death by giving up or letting go. In other words, a patient who has 
no reason to die. No reason to die today. But many reasons to die in a week or two. And you come by, you have a discussion about an end of life. We're going to withhold dialysis. We're going to withdraw dialysis. That's obviously, that's the world I live in. But, you know, everything else is stable. The potassium is fine. The acid-base balance is fine. There's absolutely no reason for the patient to die. And we have that discussion at four o'clock in the afternoon. And I come by to round the next morning and the patient died. I cannot count how many times I've seen this. And so this belief I do have that there's something that keeps you holding on to life and, um, and that letting go brings death more promptly for reasons that I cannot explain as a you know, fairly intelligent physician. And, and it's very interesting, Aldo. I mean, obviously, in the world of the ICU, um, you always seem that you go from one extreme to the other. It's like a pendulum, right? And on one hand, obviously, there are patients in whom these discussions of goals of care are very appropriate, very meaningful. But as you move forward, I think the studies have shown uh, in different contexts, they haven't explained the reason, but this whole idea of a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more you talk to people about not doing this, not doing th that, the more people die or the rapidly they die. And it might be touching on one of the observations that, that you make, and it might be something inherently uh, in, in, in the patient that also, I mean, drives or, or helps accelerate that, which I think is obviously very, very interesting. But I think that that's a very interesting point, And I think it's something that I always grapple with because you, you go almost from one extreme to the other. And really trying to find the balance is, I think, one of the big challenges in medicine and in life in general. So my last question is, uh, what would you want every listener to the podcast to know? Could be a quote that or is, fact. Yeah. So, so that is, um, uh, most know, sometimes they forget. I think it's a very important one. There is no intelligent discussion about acid-base balance without a blood gas. So <laughs> why am I bringing that up? Because periodically I get asked to comment, hey, Aldo, can you come by and comment on this urine and iron gap uh, for this patient? And what, what's the type of RTA with this urine and iron gap result and the bicarbonate of 16? And I ask for the blood gases and we don't have it. And it's a patient with a pH of whatever, 747 because of a respiratory elk. So um, I cannot count how often I see this still coming from intensive care physicians. So whenever you want to discuss acid-base, I love talking about acid-base balance, but uh, we can never have an intelligent discussion without blood gases. I love it. And I think it's a great point. <laughs> Perfect place to stop. And maybe we'll have you back to talk about acid-base and I'll have an, a blood gas if we do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It was a pleasure talking to you, Serge. Thank you so much for your time, Aldo. I really appreciate it. And uh, I sincerely uh, hope to have you back on the podcast soon. You bet. You have a good day. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound Critical Care is transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.